The Blonde on Blonde album from which I Want You was taken was the last record released by Dylan until most two years after his motorcycle accident. Tony Scaduto takes up the story. Within hours after the accident, the rumors began to fly that Dylan was a drug addict who could not be cured or had gone insane, or even that the CIA had murdered him to stop him from singing A Hard Rains Are Gonna Fall, which he'd stopped singing at least two years earlier in any case. Some of man's most horrid nightmares of death and destruction were heaped on Dylan. It wasn't until some eight months after the accident that the first real news of this cult figure who simply wanted to be an ordinary rock and roll star finally got into print. A New York City journalist drove to Dylan's home upstate in Woodstock and reported in his paper that Dylan was alive and obviously well and quite as cryptic as he'd always been. Let's listen to a song Dylan wrote after he'd recovered from his accident. The song could be about a woman. It could have a deep religious meaning, as in most of Dylan's songs, it could mean almost anything that any listener wants to hear. To me, it is Bob Dylan singing a stern warning to his company to behave. And I find it one of the funniest songs Dylan has ever written. It's called Nothing Was Delivered, and is from a never-released recording session known as The Basement Tape. Nothing Was Delivered is a special example of Dylan's finely honed sense of humor, one of his best message songs. Not the message of the protest songs, but a message to businessmen who are behaving so unfairly, in Dylan's view, that he can't get any peace of mind. In Dylan's lyrics, the singer almost sounds like an angry father, rebuking his errant child and warning him that he'd better straighten up or face some unpleasant consequences. Or he sounds like a world leader pounding his shoe at the United Nations. But the exaggerated blues piano that Dylan plays on the song, and the half-talking break in the middle that recalls the ink spots and their later rhythm and blues offshoots gives the singer an almost mischievous sound. The combination of the two, lyrics and music, makes the song a pure delight to hear. Nothing was delivered from the basement tape. Nothing was delivered And I tell this truth to you Simply because it's true Now I hope you don't object to this But you must give back what you owe The fewer words you have to waste about this The sooner you can go
nothing was delivered It's up to you to save Yes, it's up to you to save everybody's peace of mind So you best begin right now to behave Ever say again that nothing was delivered The basement tape was recorded in a studio in the basement of a converted farmhouse known as Big Pink to its inhabitants. Those inhabitants were Robbie Robertson, Levon Helm and other members of Dylan's backup group on his tour, a group that is now known as The Band. The Band and their families had moved into a house a few miles from Dylan's home in Woodstock to be near him after the accident because Dylan needed some friends around him, as Robertson later put it. Not to simply visit him in hospital, bring flowers or candy, but to pull him out of the depths to which he'd been plunged by the years of incredible pressure and chaos as a rock star. The accident affected Dylan's psyche more than his body. He was, as a friend put it, more scared than scarred. But the scars were severe enough. Dylan did indeed come close to death. He remained in his hospital bed for more than a week, and when he was returned to his home, he was forced to remain in bed for another month or so. Recovery was slow because Dylan was in poor physical condition. He had never been physically strong, and at the time of the accident, he had been considerably weakened by the exhausting concert tour, the drugs, and the enormous conflict between his fame and his fear, the fear that he was losing touch with reality, that he had become enshrined in an ego bubble, as Joan Baez had called it, that he had become the mirror image of all those he had condemned in song, the zombies among us who wear iron vests and whose sin is their lifelessness. The motorcycle accident was both a trauma and a relief. It was traumatic because Dylan was aware that an early death had always been expected of him by some friends and fans. And it was a relief because it gave him some breathing room from the demands of the marketplace. And it gave him time for a great deal of thought and self-reflection to sort things out in his head. Dylan used the accident to sidestep a rather ugly commercial scene, which he has always genuinely loathed. For, as Tony Scuduto explains, Dylan's recording contract had expired a month before the accident. His manager, Albert Grossman, had been trying to convince Dylan to leave Columbia and accept a million-dollar offer from another company. And Columbia, as we have heard, was threatening to retaliate and was holding back the $400,000 it owed Dylan. Dylan had also contracted for the book Tarantula, which he wasn't happy with when it was completed, and for a TV special, which he didn't really want to do. And he had another concert tour scheduled. The accident permitted him to put all of this aside and retreat for a while, to think about his past and his future. You're listening to six hours of the history oration in several songs on the basement tape. Here's one of them, Too Much of Nothing, here sung by Peter, Paul and Mary.
What has become known as Dylan's Metamorphosis was helped along by the bucolic setting of Woodstock by his wife and children. They had a daughter and a son by now, and Sarah was again pregnant, and also helped by the music he was writing and playing with the band, music that will be laid down on the basement tape. Most of the 19 songs on the tape have never been heard before, except by avid Dylan collectors who seem able to get hold of them through a variety of mysterious sources, and by those who bought Dylan bootlegs that were peddled over the past few years and which contain only a few songs from the tape. Dylan doesn't usually permit the broadcasting of these tapes because of the bootleg problem. He objects to the bootlegs not only because he's being deprived of royalties, but because bootleg quality is so poor, they sometimes don't even sound like Dylan. Most of all, Dylan has said, he objects to them because the bootleggers never put the songs on their albums in the sequence in which Dylan would present them. For Dylan conceives of every one of his records as a novel or a book of poems, and much thought goes into the sequence of the songs for the most heightened musical and dramatic effect. However, for these special programs on Dylan's work, his New York office has supplied the BBC with copies of these recordings, and it is clear from these recordings that Dylan had gone through some staggering changes in this post-accident period. He had succeeded in surviving the chaos which he wrote about in Memphis Blues and other songs on the albums before the accident. Not only survived, but finally made peace with himself. You can hear it first in the voice change on the basement tape. Dylan's voice is no longer the strident, grating falsetto of the rock years. It's relaxed, down home, country. Even in the songs that must be classified as rock, because people insist on artificial classifications, despite the fact that, as Dylan once said, it's all music, man. Even in the rock songs, the voice is in the lower register, from his chest rather than his head, much closer to his natural voice than he has sung in years. Country, actually. And so many of these songs on this tape, Dylan sounds like a man sitting by a lazy stream in Arkansas, fishing, singing to lure the trout to bite, and not giving a damn about the troubles of the world outside, which had rested so heavily on his shoulders for five years. Listen especially to that exaggerated laziness on the third song, called Clothesline. Nothing is important to the real people down home in the country, except living. There's nothing excited about even in the fact that the vice president has gone mad. For there's a continuum in the life cycle that transcends even world rulers. And the men and women down home in the country understand that, while the rest of us are fluttering around worrying about the latest political obscenity. In these songs, too, you can hear a small part of Dylan's wide range of talent as singer, musician, composer, and poet. It's a pity the basement tape was never released as an album, for it contains some of the most outstanding pop music ever recorded. Here, then, are three of those songs in a brief mini-concert. They're called Million Dollar Bash, Apple Suckling Tree, and Clothesline. Well, that big dumb blonde with a wheel gorged Turtle, that friend of hers with his checks all forged And his cheeks in a chunk with his cheese in the cash They're all gonna be there at that million dollar bash Ooh, baby Everybody from right now to over there and back The 
yes, it's just gonna be you and me underneath that apple sucker tree, oh yeah. I'll put you like an outstanding line, oh yeah. I'll push you late and a standing line, oh yeah. I'll push you late and a standing line, I'll get on board like a two-hour time, oh
You're listening to Six Hours of the... Asked about him since the accident, he told close friends, was that what had happened to him, both physically and psychologically, what he was thinking and feeling, what he was going to do next, would be made plain in his next album. To so many of the fans who needed Dylan as simply a friend who made good music, and so many who needed him as a crutch to support their loss of faith in society, religion, school, God, to so many, those answers were of the utmost importance, for Dylan has always been more than just a pop star. In October 1967, 14 months after his accident, Dylan went down to Nashville with a batch of new songs. In Nashville, Dylan selected three of the finest studio musicians around, Charlie McCoy on bass, Kenny Buttrey on drums, and Pete Drake on pedal steel guitar. They worked for two intensive days, and when the sessions were over, Dylan had his new album, which he called John Wesley Harding. Musically, it was a stunning reversal on what had happened in pop music in the past year or two. Sergeant Pepper had come out only a few months before, and after Pepper, the rock scene had been turned into a game of electronic musical chairs, with rock groups trying to get the strangest sounds into their albums, sometimes at the expense of good music. Rock had become almost a toy of the studio engineers who fiddled around with supercharged electricity. And Bob Dylan pulled out the plug. The music on John Wesley Harding was quite a shock because this was the era of flower power and turn on, drop out. And Dylan, who had helped start it all, announced he was going back to his country roots. And he shook up the pop music industries in England and America. Dylan certainly knew the effect that mellow sound would have on other musicians, opening the way to a more serene school of pop music reflected in the music of James Taylor, Neil Young, Crosby, Stills and Nash. Dylan returned to his country roots because he had found a degree of peace, and mostly because it was the only music he could have possibly used on an album in which he wanted his poetry to carry his meaning, so that he would be fully understood. John Wesley Harding is probably Dylan's only album with a truly deliberate message to it. And the easy country beat is an absolutely necessary companion to the poetry. John Wesley Harding is infused with the belief in God, with one man's struggle for self-discovery and for compassion. It's Dylan's version of a Bible for which he has personally traveled and suffered and been vainglorious and unfaithful to his real self. The songs are written as parables describing the fall and the rebirth of one man, Bob Dylan. My interpretation of John Wesley Harding is highly personal, and I expect many Dylan fans to disagree with me. Some of Dylan's power to affect so many comes in part from the subtle way in which his songs take on different shades of meaning for different listeners, and sometimes different meanings for the same listener at different periods of time. Certainly, anything one hears in Dylan or in any poet may be its true meaning. Dylan has recognized this changing meaning that his songs have, and the straitjacket in which a man's words can be put by too literal an interpretation, which is why he's always insisted that one should not interpret him, but simply try to feel what he's saying. But an interpretation of this album is absolutely essential to an understanding of what man and poet had gone through. And it's based on what Dylan himself has said was his intent in writing the album. In this album, then, Dylan is describing the fires that almost consumed him, and in writing about himself, Dylan drew on the Bible for the form on which to build his poems. The biblical quality becomes apparent on the liner notes to the album, which is a parable about three jolly but disreputable appearing kings who are searching for the key, perhaps the key to the kingdom,
But as the tale unfolds, we learn they're searching for the key to the meaning of the songs inside the album. The parable is filled with irony about Dylan's role as a Christ figure to so many. The request of the kings to be taken inside Dylan's mind just far enough so they can boast they've been there. And the final irony, the kings have been transfigured and made happy and are more certain than ever that Dylan is the Messiah, which is Dylan's wry way of saying that the songs inside this album are filled with meaning, and you're a fool if you really believe that. And then the first cut is placed on the turntable, the title song to the album, and I hear Dylan in the garb of the famous outlaw of the American West saying that Harding's gunman suit is a cloak to disguise the body of Christ beneath the costume. Dylan saying, perhaps, that he was cast in the role of the Messiah and his ego made him almost accept that sort of curse. John Wesley Harding was a friend to the poor He traveled with a gun in every hand All along this countryside he opened to six hours of the extends this theme Dylan offering his hand to a woman in chains 
a woman imprisoned by our culture's evasions, hostilities, and vanities, which makes us blind to the true meaning of existence. And she seizes his arm and tries to entice him into her prison. But Dylan escapes with the assistance of the American Revolutionary War hero, Tom Paine, a rather obvious symbol of liberty. And in the song, I Dreamed I Saw St. Augustine, Dylan is filled with guilt at having accepted the role of prophet and of now recognizing that he had been a false prophet, that trying to be a savior when he was only another human being struggling to survive was a false pose that almost destroyed him. St. Augustine Alive as you or me Tearing through These quarters in The utmost misery With a blanket His arm And a coat of solid gold Searching for the very souls whom already have been sold. Arise, arise, he cried so loud with a voice without restraint. Come out, ye gifted kings and queens, and hear my sad complaint No martyr is among ye now whom ye can call your own But go on your way accordingly and know you're not
musical symbols that Dylan uses in the next song on the album, All Along the Watchtower, perhaps the finest song in this collection, are quite clear. Dylan borrows heavily from the book of Isaiah, who prophesizes the Lord's angry destruction of the world in these words. And the Lord said, Watch in the watchtower. Go, set a watchman. Let him declare what he seeth. Eventually, the watchman sees riders approaching and asks the news. And one of them says that Babylon has fallen and all its idols have been destroyed. And the watchman describes the Lord's cataclysmic destruction in these words, the morning cometh and also the night. And here is Dylan with his own reworking of Isaiah to describe how he, the joker in the song, have been questioning his very existence and to describe the personal Armageddon he has faced. There must be some way out of here Say the joker to the thief There's too much confusion I can't get no relief Businessmen, they drink my wine Plowmen dig my earth None of them along the line Know what any of it is worth to six hours of the history. It all began in Denver at the family dog. ...priest, and in The Wicked Messenger, in most of the other songs on the album, Dylan paints a portrait of himself as a vain and foolish man who was sucked into the very traps which he had condemned, who was proud rather than humble, who had accepted fame and wealth, was afraid to face up to his own visions, and was almost destroyed. But in the song, The Drifters Escape, a courthouse where Dylan is being judged for his crimes is struck by a bolt of lightning, an illumination from the Lord, perhaps, 
and Dylan slips out of the grasp of the idolizers. And finally, the last song but two, The Wicked Messenger. In this song, Dylan is at his best, juxtaposing his biblical symbols against an incredible descending blues line, an unsettling blues line that's wrecked with tension. The song tells of the death and rebirth of Bob Dylan, and the rebirth is in the last line, bring good news or don't bring any. There was a wicked messenger from Eli, he did come With a mind that multiplied the smallest matter When questioned who had sent for him, he answered with his thumb For his tongue it could not speak but only flatter Stayed behind the assembly hall It was there he made his bed Oftentimes he could be seen returning Until one day he just appeared With a note in his hand which read The soles of my feet I swear they're burning If you cannot bring good news and don't bring any The John Wesley Harding album pointed the direction in which pop music would be headed away from electronics and studio pyrotechnics and back to the basics once more, Dylan had jumped into a new phase just a step ahead of the crowd, and both the public and other musicians followed him back to the country. But when it became clear with his next album that Dylan wasn't just taking a little vacation from the roles so many of his fans continued to insist that he play out for them, Dylan was once more accused of having sold out. For none of those who have fantasized on Dylan could ever really believe that he couldn't lead them out of the desert. The final songs on the album, Down Along the Cove and I'll Be Your Baby Tonight, is Dylan singing the good news, the glad tidings of the ancient Jewish texts, and Luke's glad tidings of the Messiah's birth. These songs are deceptively simple love songs, but in the poet's scheme of things, they're filled with meaning. But Dylan is speaking of love. Not the social straitjacket that suppresses sensuality, but a full realization of all that is implicit in a human relationship an understanding that one is really loving if he is giving. In the final song, Dylan is now a man who is able to give love without reservation or fear. He tells his woman to close her eyes, that he'll be there and he'll take care of her, which is complete commitment. 
And in the final irony of the album, Bob Dylan, Mockingbird, is going to vanish, while the newly found Dylan gets down to the serious business of living and loving. Listening to six hours of the history and if you're traveling in the north country fire where the winds hit heavy on the borderline remember me to one who lives there She once was a true love man. Bob Dylan had written Girl from the North Country at the end of 1962 when he came over to England to appear in a BBC television play and he recorded it on his second album. Coming, as it did during his protest period, a love song at a time when he was writing Blowing in the Wind and Masters of War made some of the dogmatists of the folk movement question how Dylan could dare sing about his private affairs when he should be leading a cavalry charge against the warmongers and the racists. 
And more than six years later, that same song prompted another kind of dogmatist to question whether Dylan's head and his heart were in the right place. If you're traveling to the North Country Fair Where the winds hit heavy on the borderline Remember me to one who lives there For she once was a true love of mine See for me that her hair's hanging down It curls and falls all down her breast See for me that her hair's hanging down That's the way I remember her bed if you go When the snowflakes fall When the rivers freeze And summer ends Please see for me If she's wearing a coat so warm To keep her from the howling If you're traveling in the North Country Fair Where the winds hit heavy on the borderline Please say hello to one who lives there she was once a true love of mine from the Nashville Skyline album, and that was Johnny Cash singing with Dylan. There's always been a strong bond between Dylan and Cash. When Dylan's record company wanted to drop him in 1962 because his first album didn't sell more than a few thousand copies, 
Cash joined producer John Hammond in a demand to company executives that they permit Bob to record a second album, and they won. Nashville's skyline is as clear as a country stream, without irony, ambiguity, or anger. It's the sound of a healthy Dylan, in love with life, his kids, his wife. It's a fine album, almost as perfect in many ways as Dylan's best album, Highway 61 Revisited. It's an album of songs celebrating love, or love's slight twinges of pain, without the old Dylan bitterness that once cut so deeply. And it's a natural extension of the John Wesley Harding album, which ended with two upbeat songs of love and joy. It's simply Bob Dylan continuing to celebrate the joys of living, of having made it alive through the chaos and the near destruction of the superstardom.
listening to six hours of the history and music of Bob Dylan. They seemed to show more contented Dylan. His audiences were not all so ready to accept this new approach. They began accusing Dylan of selling his soul to that modern devil, American big business. One critic said that Dylan is a businessman first and a prophet sometime later. Another accused him of investing his millions in American war industries that were killing and maiming Vietnamese women and children. Those now attacking Dylan were the same persons who began fantasizing on him as a savior after he turned to rock, back when his original disciples grew so shrill because he'd turn away from folk protest. And yet, at the same time, there were some who could not believe what their ears told them, that Dylan was just a guy and not a god, as he once put it. And they began to read political meanings into an album that is nothing more nor less than the best popular music of its day. One leader of the American radical movement actually said that he could see Nashville's skyline as Dylan's attempt to reach out to the white working class in America at the very same moment that the radical movement realized it had to make contact with the alienated white hillbillies in northern cities and the children of the white working class families. That Dylan was deliberately trying to reach a working class constituency. This critic even saw this quite simple and delightful song as filled with political meaning. Dinner, honey, I'll be there. Saddle me up my big white boots. Tie me on and turn her loose. Oh, me, oh, my. Love that country pie. That old beat street Little Jack Horner Got nothing on me Oh me oh my Love that country pie Country pie from the Nashville Skyline album But as Dylan later said He wasn't trying to reach anyone But Bob Dylan He was simply writing songs That gave him some pleasure And that hopefully Would bring pleasure to others if there were messages in these songs, they were simply that one should place love and family above everything else. The music that Bob was writing and recording at this time was no longer filled with the pain of the early years. It was a reflection of his life, content with his wife and children, beginning to look up old friends whom he hadn't seen in years and to whom he had occasionally been cruel in those days when he felt that people just get uglier and I have no sense of time. He was actually going to the 10th reunion of his Hibbing High School graduating class, no longer finding it quite so necessary to make himself invisible. And while some were criticizing him sharply, other musicians once more understood precisely what Dylan was all about. 
Eric Clapton, for example, told one interviewer that to say Dylan is no longer concerned with the great moral issues of the world is nonsense, because nearly all his songs take the form of parables that require a hard look for their meaning. Even if you don't look, Clapton said, the song is still valid as a good song. But when you do look, you'll find that what Dylan sings comes straight from the heart. And he is still trying to make people realize that peace of mind is more important than being rich. Their love is more important than anything else in the world. If Nashville skyline disturbed some, Dylan's next album, Self-Portrait, made many of his fans imagine that they were trapped in the Sahara with an ounce of water and a moldy orange. Because Self-Portrait, on first hearing, appeared to be as far as anyone could get away from what Bob Dylan had once represented. These are the words of a frontier lad Who lost his love when he turned back Take a message to Mary But don't tell her where I am a message to Mary But don't say I'm in a jam You can tell her that I had to see the world Tell her that my ship set sail You can say she'd better not wait for me But don't tell her I'm in jail a message to Mary But don't tell her what I've done Please don't mention the stagecoach And the shot from a callous gun You can tell her that I had to change my plans And cancel out the wedding day But please don't mention my lonely self Take a Message to Mary, and it's one of the key songs on the Self-Portrait album because that song, and most of the album, is an acknowledgement of his roots, a series of thank yous to those who had helped so much in Dylan's musical development. The album is more than just a self-portrait of a singer and songwriter, more than just a tracing of his roots. The album demonstrates something Dylan felt very strongly at this time, that he has finally become a good musician. 
and that he finally recognizes that he has an extraordinary voice, a voice that can handle almost any song, from the most strident rock to the laziest country, and even crooning. This is Dylan almost crooning on his version of Blue Moon, which had been a huge hit for Elvis Presley. I remember Dylan had always said as a young man that he wanted to make it as big as Presley.